Hello. Good, good morning. Welcome to the Survival Guide. Hey, hello. With Joel. And Lorna. How are you going today? We've got lots of stuff to talk about. We're going to go straight into a phone interview today with um, my mother. Um, for the last couple of weeks, I've been working on a project um, engaging with the issues of otitis media in the Redfern community, um, especially in Marowina and the other schools back in the 80s and 90s, um, with which my mum was uh, an uh, early healthcare nurse um, and did a lot of important research and a lot of important work dealing with these issues. Um, so we're going to cut straight to that nurse, that woman, my mum. Your mum. And have a few conversations, a few, ask a few questions about um, her experiences and, and how she's learnt about how to deal with, you know, racism and other things in um, the health system while mm. working in Redfern Waterloo. So mm. let's introduce Juanita Sherwood. You're on the air. How's it going? Great. Great. Good to talk to you. Yeah, good to and, talk to you too. And I'm really pleased that you're doing this. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, how's your day going? How have you been today? It's good. I'm at the fifth um, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander Health Summit, and we've just had a couple of we've had um, Ken um, Wyatt, and we've also had um, who else have we had? Um, Brett Hazard and speaking at this at, at this gathering. Who was that? Brad Hazard. Brad the Hazard, Minister Health, the yes. Minister for Health, and then Ken oh, wow. Wyatt, the Federal Minister. That's very interesting because Brad Hazard was the um, the Minister for Housing back in 2015 who was the one who wrote the letter addressed to the um, Redfern and the Waterloo public housing estate that they were going to be evicted. Mm-hmm. <laughs> we read that letter out and now. We read that letter out yep. in episode three oh, when we were talking that's... about um, the tenants' reception of the redevelopment. Oh. Um, yeah, so... I guess we're going to just go straight into this and have a conversation with you about your own experiences um, when you were working in Redfern, um, but as well as kind of what you've what you've experienced as a nurse, and then also how that's kind of tran- transformed into also um, education and academia and stuff. Okay. So, so like, okay. how, how long have you been working in health? Uh, I started in 1980. I started by training as a nurse in, yep. and um, I completed my training in 83, um, worked post-grad um, up to 85, then went and did um, primary school teaching at Catholic Uni and um, continued to nurse part-time on night duty. Mm-hmm. But when I finished that, my teaching diploma, I went to work in Redfern as a child and family health nurse and with three years of um, primary education um, under my belt and and the nursing focus, I learned a lot about um, how, what were the barriers to education for children Mm. and particularly um, Indigenous communities and so I was probably really um, the pro- you know, a good person to go to Redfern and um, pick up that there was really high rates of otitis media in the child population in primary schools, in early childhood centres and in high school. Mm. Yeah, because, I mean, you and I have spoken about this, but can, 
context, uh, we've been, uh, I'm having a conversation around these ideas of access to healthcare and education in um, an artwork that mm-hmm. is going into an exhibition at the end of next month in July um, down in Melbourne at the Ian Potter Gallery where we are, um, and part of the artwork is a, is a recorded conversation between you and me over mm-hmm. the top of a... Um, of an ear exam, essentially, uh, photo yeah. footage of our ears and and kind of witness, bearing uh, ear witness to this narrative and, and something that you and other women in the community, mums and teachers and everybody kind of played a huge part in and mm. affected a whole generation of um, young Indigenous children in being able to access better education. I mean, last week's episode mm. on the show, we covered themes around education and the kind of the uh, tried to answer and pose some new questions around what's the state of um, education, public education as well within the Redfern Waterloo area. Um, so I think it's a really great kind of uh, step forward after that conversation to kind of now engage with the way that also health institutions intersect with that stuff. Yeah, yeah. Um, so I guess I'm going to ask you another question about what it is about your own experiences back there. So. When, okay. What was it like starting out when you got to Redfern? Well, I guess, I mean, and I think this is a really critical space, is that I crossed the barrier of health and education. Mm. Um, so I came from both a health and education perspective, which was, com- was not, is not commonly addressed. Um, and I think we continue to work in silos and so we don't connect, you know, and, and that's what I found when I was connecting health professionals with children who had... Um, hearing losses, they did not get it. They just went, well, mm. so what does that mean? And I'm going, well, if you can't hear, you can't learn. You know, like mm. that should be fairly obvious. But obviously, well, even, you know, some threat specialists I've worked with said, I didn't think about it. I didn't click it. I didn't link it. So the intersection, I guess, I crossed assisted me to try and pull those things together. And I guess, you know, Coming, from, I, I came from a more holistic perspective of what the significance of hearing loss was for children in in a schooling setting, mm. and how it just it didn't just impact on whether they could hear, it impacted on you know their speech development, it mm. impacted on their ability to pay attention, it acted on their um, well, I found out you know through the years on their life chances you know. Mm. It was. It's, it's a significant disease that is invisible, as I've, we've talked about, and so people don't see, you know, oh, you've got a hearing loss. Um, and so often um, these young kids that I was dealing with at the time were treated as naughty because they weren't listening, and they weren't listening because they couldn't possibly physically listen. Mm. And And rather than having that understood, until you know, I did the work and started going to schools and educating teachers about you know what does a hearing loss look like, um, what are the behaviours of, of you know what what do kids do when they're not hearing? Um, they, these kids were being sent out of the classroom for, for being naughty, mm-hmm. and so they were copying grief from teachers and sometimes their parents as well for not listening, and they just couldn't possibly listen because they couldn't hear. Mm. I think it's really interesting how you you touched on how your own background in education and health gave you a more holistic approach to these yep. um, issues and concerns. How were those? Was, was that was that holistic approach 
um, reflected also in the health services that you were a part of? Like, what was what was no. the AMS like when you were there? Well, the AMS w- was busy dealing with you know everything, um, mm. and I, and I didn't work at the AMS. I worked at the community health, um, which was. Um, but I worked with the AMS and I worked with the Aboriginal Health Branch, but I never... Um, so we worked together um, in... I mean, the AMS is fantastic. It supplied all the tissues for me to do the nose-blowing programs mm-hmm. with kids in preschools. And, it was really and, important and, to blow your nose so that you yeah. don't, so you're not congested and you can actually hear properly and yeah. um, it's a good way of treating it, yeah. So they supported me really strongly in that space. They, you know, they helped me out with um, getting kids to the nose and throat specialists, you know, because I couldn't fit more than three or four kids in a car. So they'd help me with another three or four kids, um, so I could take a band of kids to, you know, the specialists. They 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 backed me, whereas mm-hmm. you know the service that I was, um, and I was really well supported by community health professionals. It was a non-Aboriginal health professional who had no appreciation of the importance of this um, work and how we really needed to work in the community as well. And I guess, um, and it wasn't just the health workers, it was the Aboriginal education assistants in the primary schools in the, and, and the Aboriginal educationists in the preschools who went, oh my mm. goodness, we've really got to do something about this. We can, we, we can stop this impacting and having a long-term issue for these kids and when I talked to parents parents went oh my god that's what happened to me that's you know that was my issue I was always getting into trouble so they went oh and I'm growling my kid now and so there was a lot of um unpacking what what this invisible issue really did to people and families and communities and Mm -hmm. um and because it, like I said, it, you know, it's not it's not a broken arm or it's not a stab wound, all that sort of stuff. So people just don't get that this is really impacting on somebody's life. Mm. And unfortunately, it what I think I dealt with in health was that you know the behaviours of a child with a hearing loss fitted the deficit of a child not wanting to learn. Mm. And so there was that misinterpretation and misdiagnosis of children and yes. their behaviours. And, um, and that continuously informed how they were dealt with. And and eventually, I, I believe, um, you know, 20 years down the track when I was working, you know, in prisons and meeting the young women I worked with, with Otitis Media and Redstone 20 years before, they said, you know, you internalise that space. You, you, you feel that you are a problem. That judgment mm. and that deficit is yeah. internalised by the person who has, is, no, is not bearing any prejudice themselves. It's the no. institutions that have... It's been put on them. Put on them. Put on them, yeah. Yeah, that's... I mean, that's just the tragic story that you hear way too often in yeah. relationship to all of these sort of perceived notions of um, indigeneity uh, coming up against um, colonial viewpoints and, and, a, and a kind of... Even un, unassuming or uh, un, unaware white attitude towards Indigenous people, and I think what's really important is with what you guys were doing is you really located it within the urban context, and you yeah. you showed everybody that this was not just a rural issue that Indigenous kids were experiencing this high level of institutional racism and mm. the un, 
inaccessible healthcare in cities. Um, yes. and, and I think that ties in directly with what we're talking about here, about gentrification and the way that it, it kind of has a parallel to the ideas of colonization and we're trying to unpack those connections each episode to a different theme and today we're talking about health um which i think you know is a really important thing to try and locate how these differences can be um really really detrimental to um everyone but you know fundamentally these were this was detrimental to kids um Well, when we talk, uh, hey, Juanita, sorry, Lorna here. Um, morning. Good morning. Um, thank you for taking your time out um, to talk to us um, and being on the ground there too. You know, at that conference, I guess, um, you know, there'd be a lot um, to think about and to talk about. But I just wanted to bring it back to the holistic approach and what yeah. you're talking about, which is really what we've kind of been um, researching and digging into. Just how many different institutions were built to uh, benefit Aboriginal communities and specifically Mm -hmm. the community here in Redfern and Waterloo and how the ripple affected how these great things that were established here and these relationships um, and these, you know, um, crossing disciplinaries and and all that sort of stuff, um, how that has reached every corner of this country and all our communities now. Um, and a lot of it just really comes back to that holistic approach within every one of those institutions. And I went to Redfern Primary um, in the 90s, um, you know, and I had um, older brothers and sisters um, going to the same schools as well. You know, and, like, the... the Just really um, grateful now, retrospectively, looking at how different this community is and how different these services are treated and working in these silos after kind of having all of this great breakthrough work happening in the 80s and the 90s, following on from, you know, the establishment of these Aboriginal community-controlled organisations and what that meant. I just... um, I, I too work within education. I focus yep. a little bit more on the mental health side of things. Yep. And I'm just really interested in um, um, a lot of the colonial barriers, a lot of the, the things that our kids have to navigate through that other kids in the same classroom um, have to navigate through, um, you know, and how the stigmatisation of, of Aboriginal children really kind of sets them up it's it's creating a huge wall that we have to spend the rest of our lives to climb over. Yeah, exactly. I, I think, I mean, Dr Greg Phillips, who's got 25 years of experience in leading change and, and he's a medical anthropologist, he's, he's an amazing man from Queensland. Who, he's, he's spoken at this, um, com- this conference this morning and he just said, you know, our biggest issue is that, you know, Australia just does not have any idea about its history. Mm. And unfortunately, and we had Stan Grant speak at this place too, and Stan Grant said, oh, well, you know, we've, you know, we've got trauma, but we need to be forgiving. And, um, but we've got social determinants that are big issues that impact on the health and well-being of people. Now, social determinants, I guess, is another way of, um, you know, their education issues, their health issues, their racism issues. I mean, I, I think racism is a key health determinant mm-hmm. that impacts on the health and well-being of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people. 
and it, and it, and it's you know it's systemic and it's institutionalized and it's um, and it, it's rolled out laterally in so many ways. Um, but but our biggest issue is you know our kids just getting them to school and having an education that is meaningful to them. Mm. It, um, and it's not. I mean it's 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 a real issue because our, the teachers that teach them don't know about Australia's history. They don't make this space relevant for those children. They continue to, if they're not teaching, um, you know, the holistic level of histories, the, you know, the, telling, the, telling the true stories. Mm. Mm. Um, our kids get overwhelmed and penalised for their for their lack of attention and and they're, and they're, they're not attending because they know they're, they're not being told the, the right story mm. and I think you know that those kids have grown up in families where parents know that this is something that should be taught um, and we should I mean I there was a great quote that was used this morning you know for many for many generations we were told to be not proud of who we are well the last to, you know, three decades, we are proud of who we are mm. and we're proud of where we come from. And I think it's really important that, you know, our education settings and our health settings support that process and benefit us around, you know, not only, and I think this is to the health and well-being of all Australia. Mm-hmm. Um, people really miss out by not knowing their story. Mm. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um I think that's really interesting. I, I think coming from how you're talking about dealing with racism as a social social determinant in Australia, um, this brings up you know how we've spo- you've spoken about the stuff that you had to do in terms of you know getting getting in a car and driving kids to the hospital driving kids to the hospital to yeah. see the ENT specialist. And it's like, how much of your own work were you doing? outside of your hours essentially that was about navigating you know the racism like and and that you know it was actually stopping you from doing your real work was or that your real work became navigating that racism um as well as being a nurse for these children and stuff i think my whole working life has been about navigating racism mm. quite seriously i think you know every day i'm dealing with you know the ripples of People not knowing, not understanding, not appreciating, saying things to me um, and feeling comfortable saying quite disparaging things to me mm. about our people. Mm. And and they feel comfortable saying it to me because, you know, oh, you don't really look Aboriginal. Uh, you know, you don't really... And, um, and you can't really be because you've actually, you know, done so well educationally. Well, you know, I, I worked really hard to get to do what I've done and, and you know we've got the most Aboriginal people in the university system at the moment ever which is fantastic and we need to be, continue growing this space but we have not managed to be able to really pull racism out of the agenda that we're dealing with day in and day out yeah I mean and I think you know I've tried I mean look it was very clear what was happening it was institutional and naive and, and and people always said to me oh Juanita it's just that we didn't get it you know we didn't understand but why is it still happening mm-hmm. 
And there's it's actually been a huge wind back of a lot of yes. these things that you know um, have uh, that that you that you older followers have created yes. that have been built on you know the previous generation's work. Yes. And these yes. are all great things that have benefited our lives yes. that you know I don't see in my community happening. Um, so I I'm not quite sure about the relationship with these health services and the local schools now. Um, yes, especially after the amalgamations and closing down of Redfern schools and all of these schools that had those previous relationships with these health institutions and with all of these great services that were established in the community to service the community, mm. yes. closing down those schools has further isolated, you know, the, the big major mega school that they've amalgamated all of these schools into. Yep. Yes. Now, where, how, how does the community engage? Um, yeah. You know, and how does that school engage with the community? And mm. these are the big questions that I'm asking um, as someone who kind of got, you know, uh, there's there's not much in the schools about anything Aboriginal. Um, and, you know, I actually create a lot of programs and try to go in there. And it's always under the guise of like art therapy. Yeah. You know, and it's always under the guise of, uh, you know, but yeah. what we do in there is we are learning English in order to learn language. We're talking yeah. about genocide. We're talking yeah. about not blaming yourself because you can't do basic stuff like write a family tree. Mm. Yes. You know, um, all of these things that impacts on our mental health. And then, mm. you know, um, I, I just really would like to hear um, your how how would you describe the current state of black health today i guess after all the work you know and all the labor that you guys have put in um you know what is it now i guess and what do, how do you see things now i guess I, I look i see the impact of western politics that has undermined the funding of our agencies um I, you know from the from, you know, there are many eras of that have pulled funding out of programs. And we've always cynically said, oh, if it works, they're going to stop funding it. Yeah. And I think that, 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 that cynicism often comes true. And so I, I think what you're talking about, Lorna, is, you know, we did succeed. We did achieve. We, we, we made a difference. You did really well. And isn't it interesting that, you know, those sorts of programs were defunded? I mean, it's, mm. it's like the Royal Commission into Death and Custody. Mm -hmm. And all the uh, other commissions as well. Exactly. And people said, well, why why aren't we, you know, I'm going, well, you, because the government defunded all the organisations that were meant to do the programming in this mm. space. You know, mm. that, that's the issue. So we've got to come back to mm. the cost is not, the cost to us has been, you know, through elaborate policy shifts and changes. And I think, you know, it's the continuation of colonisation. Totally is in so many different ways. And I mm -hmm. guess through, you know, this show, what we're doing and the work that Joel and I are doing together, yeah. we're really, you know, it just reaffirms everything that we already know. It yeah. reaffirms everything we've been taught and, you know, what yeah. we've seen, the tangible evidence that we see mm. every day and all mm. of our memories and, you know, all of these kind of things. Um, that are bringing us to the reasons why we're trying to reiterate to everybody else and our yeah. listeners out there why this stuff is important. Yes, exactly. 
and that yeah. there is and that you know directly like how you've said there is a there is a direct relationship to we, between the western the, the these western political goals of trying to shift funding and then yeah. you know in our earlier episodes we talked about money we talked yeah. about the neoliberalization of these systems and how that has eroded. eroded these services that you guys and you know yeah exactly like Lorna said these old fellows had fought for to yeah. put in place and these things are now being pushed back and these relationships have you know come down to being a quantifiable monetary cost on what yeah. is human cost and and, exactly. and it doesn't and it's only because it affects the marginalized people of color immigrants and other people that it's not a bigger conversation within mm. our society um, and so what we're trying to talk about today as, as well as, you know, what's been amazing to talk to you is these, these examples and how they have played out already uh. countless times through the communities around Australia, but also the specific community of Redfern, Waterloo mm. and, and how living in the city has had this human cost on... Well, it's that transient population as mm. well, you know, the demographic that made up this city. Um, and we're all products of dispossession mm. and then coming back and then, you know, being in a space all together and then identifying issues yeah. and then coming up with the solutions. Yep. You know, we're still not, we're still, <laughs> we're still having aspects of our lives controlled and it's yeah. 2018, yeah. Um, you know, and again, I'm not sure if, you know, what are the things, what are these services, uh, how are the community and the school all engaged with that because as a kid you know when that bus used to pull up and we used to have to go to the AMS for yeah. our dental and all that sort of yeah. stuff we yeah. that was like the highlight of our week was going to see the dentist and like talk to you know the ear specialists and you know have our test and you know we'd all be like bragging about how my eyesight never deteriorated since last year like you know <laughs> so we was always like you know um yeah. reminding each other about that sort of stuff and you know all the things that we at the, that holistic approach made all of this information very much a part of our everyday talk yeah mm. um and that i think as a young as a young person back then and now as an adult going into these these institutions yeah it just blows my mind um just the just the kind of you know um pushing to the side the whole um you know that that is not relevant that's too much that's too much money energy to make sure that you know these black kids are having all of these things yeah. and this is the attitude of the people that are working in this community at the moment yeah um, and it's pretty universal i think mm. and um, and that's what we keep saying is what happened in redfern happens everywhere else yeah and that's going back to 1788 when they first came here you know yeah. um sorry i just go on my rant a lot no that's cool <laughs> um yeah, I mean, we we really uh, we could talk forever. I think, um, and I would really love to get in with this conversation again soon. Um, I mean, we've talked about some of these themes in the work, and um, it, there's there's much more stuff to unpack. But I mm. think you should probably get back to what you're doing yeah. at I the do. summit. Yeah, thank um, you. But you know, really, also what we're trying to talk about is is the way in which you and other people within those services really fought for this really fought for things for us to be who we are today. Mm. And we still are. Foundation. I mean, I think that's really important is that, you know, I'm here today to speak about these things. Mm. You know, I will, I will be raising these issues, you know, I'll, I'll be bringing this connection to, you know, let, let's, let's not forget yeah. um, 
what we did have and how we could have and, and how we can do it again. You yeah. Know? Yep. That's right. All right. Well, thank you so much. Thank I hope you, you have a good rest of your day. Um, thank you. Thank and you. And we... I hope you go well too. Yeah, thank you. Thank All right. Lots of love. Bye. Bye. Thank you. Um, just for our listeners, Joel, would you like to just reiterate that work again? Um, and yeah, so, so um, in, in collaboration with the Melbourne um, University Law Faculty and Liquid Architecture, we're putting, there is a group exhibition being put on called Eavesdropping. Um, kind of with work, uh, it's a group show, a bunch of Australian artists as well as international artists um, with work kind of addressing the themes of the politics of listening. Um, the exhibition opens at the Ian Potter Art Gallery in on the 26th of July, uh, where I have a work um, in in the exhibition talking about the kind of historical event of how the Redfern community dealt with Otitis Media in the preschools and schooling system um, in direct conversation with my mum, who was an early healthcare nurse, mm-hmm. um, as well as myself and a few other people, as myself who suffered from otitis media when I was a young child, um, and kind of talking about the kind of the deeper um, conceptual issues around the way in which colonization has eroded access to services and education, um, and is essentially colonization being bad for one's health um, as an indigenous body. And that's kind of as we're kind of. Re- remembering and bringing back every episode that we talk about this is that we're trying to give you some guidance within the current system of gentrification in Redfern Waterloo and the wider Australian context experienced by us, experienced by the black bodies who are essentially the decoding mechanism of this landscape and Mm. the filter through which the, the things that happen in these communities are felt the hardest um, and the ways in which colonial structures and Western um, governments have experimented on using, you know, quite on one end of the spectrum, quite um, completely disgusting and, and, and barbaric methods mm. of um, displacement, um, separation, and, and you know, you know, to, to the to the to the extreme extent of you know just outright manslaughter, oh, you know, murder, um, and genocide. Like- but also the ways in which um, Indigenous communities like Redfern have been used to um, inform political um, social policy and other things that we see in our cities and in our towns all over Australia. Where... Um, back to the survival guide. Back to the survival guide. We've just um, had a really great conversation, kind of engaging and talking about issues that you know the Redfern and Waterloo community um, had faced in the 80s and 90s in relationship to education and healthcare. Mm, we're still kind facing of, today, really. Exactly. Kind of looking at how kind of, you know, ironically the parallels are still so strong in relationship to some of the kind of undealt, the issues that are not being dealt with um, by the educational institutions, the health mm. institutions outside mm. of the community. Um, All these institutions that have been hijacked and defunded. Exactly. Um, you know, uh, I think I've said it in a previous episode, um, you know, when I was studying at uni and talking to all these older fellas um, about, you know, what what was the thing that that changed and um, has brought us to this, mm. this, this landscape right now. And when I say landscape, I mean, you know, the political um, landscape of it all and where we sit in that. And a lot of, a lot of the older people involved in these organizations have always said and they always say and everyone keeps bringing it back to when they started accepting government funding 
how it just literally changed who they were accountable to, mm. um, which, you know, a lot of the energy and time and labor is often then spent on meeting deadlines yep. and paperwork instead of, instead of the actual work yep. um, that they're setting up that service and navigating to do. And navigating that prejudicial and, and, and racist mentality that's built into the system. I mean, you know, funding's all well and good, but when it's written on a term-by-term basis, it, it runs out. And That's it right. gets redirected and programs that started in earnest in really, really, really um, as powerful moments. That's, I mean, it's, there's kind of this irony that I, that I hear in everything to do with Indigenous struggles around almost everything around Indigenous mm-hmm. land rights and sovereignty and, and self-determination is that you cannot, you cannot look at any one of the achievements um, as being small or futile in the mm-hmm. moment that they happened they were amazing they were huge they were important but the structure of colonization the structure of australian government has unpacked and neutered and and destabilized redirected funding in every way eroded those services time and time again and we've seen this kind of ongoing for the last 200 years and what we're trying to do here on the survival guide is talk you through how those parallels can be drawn and how to better learn how to what are you, what are the tactics you can use mm. and how to how to better address yourself in the context of the city today on mm. this country and reminding you followers that we have survived this shit before mm. we've done this um and you know what what joel's mom was saying we we've done this before um, you know, and I guess this is what colonization is. It's a cycle of abuse. It's a cycle of um, fuckery, mm. <laughs> literally. Yep. Um, the, you know that it's really hard for us to get out of. And no matter, no matter all the hard work and all the labor and all the deadly things that our people do, if we don't have space, mm. then you know they're all kind of just kind of band-aid situations within this bigger problem mm. that everybody keeps blaming us for yeah um you know blaming us uh, for being colonized exactly um, it's this passive it's this passive neglect that you can see right. play out you can see play out in almost every every field it's it's not only in health and education but also in the urban in the urban redevelopment it's a strategy it's the housing in which stuff how they leave these buildings don't maintain them for years and then that's the justification for knocking it down getting rid of the families inside of it and then building a mm. nice new home for a more more what better looking mm. a, a, a wider version of yep. that family that lived there before um, you know, and this is what we see played out everywhere. Yeah, or it's one or the other. You either see you either see exactly that where there's this kind of passive neglect that necessitates a, a reevaluation, a reimagining, a a redevelopment, um, a reinvigorating of a um, of a community, or you know what what's been experienced within um, I think also healthcare and in in and educational institutions where these things are ignored to the point where then when they finally do something and it will mm. be it'll be you know. A shadow of what, what, what the former, what the like, you know, what were the, what the original um, initiatives were. Everyone starts clapping and patting themselves on the back for doing, you know, the very bare minimum of mm-hmm. what they are obligated to do as a mm-hmm. government institution or, or a health institution or an academic institution. Um, mm-hmm. And there's still so much fighting and so much progress that we have to do to get through this. Um, 
And I think that there's so many parallels that you can draw between these three issues around education, health, and the urban environment. Um, and this is the context in which we're talking today is how in, how in what ways is the development, the redevelopment of Redfern Waterloo um, going to impact on people's health and mm. drawing that thread through from, you know, the original arrival of colonizers in 1788 up until today as a continual process of denial, um, negligence, uh, misdiagnosis, uh, misinformation, and how we can combat those tactics that have been used against mm. us. Um, but if we understand all these things, we have some idea of what's going to happen in the future. We have some way of projecting from what we already know the possibilities. But it's also a great way of being able to um, to influence that, mm. to try and influence that, you know, because if you're coming into this landscape again and not knowing anything and you think you've got a really great idea, you need to go and check that shit because there's probably somebody else that had that great idea mm. that has been defunded mm. and then you're just setting yourself up to fail. Yes. And that's kind of what's been happening um, with a lot of services and a lot of new services that have come into the community um, and don't actually benefit benefit that community you know when we've got great services there that are being defunded mm. and that are you know having literally white versions of themselves setting themselves up right next door and then competing for um for everything for you know people coming through the doors as well as the funding so there's a there's a two-tiered approach and i just wanted to bring it back to that mental health stuff you know because a lot of the stuff that i do is um kind of touching on that a lot of the art stuff a lot of the finding your voice after being silenced for so long you know again at I, I really don't think people understand what that feels like. Mm. Unless you've seriously had no voice and have been silenced generationally, then you really don't quite know what it's like to value being heard. Mm. And I think that, you know, it's really as basic as that. It's really like as fundamental as that. Um, and you think about that, you know, not being heard. When we're the only ones with all of the solutions and we have to sit back and, and watch idiots literally you know dictate where how our children are going to be um schooled as well as um you know educated as well as where they're living as what they're eating as well as you know how well their bodies are functioning mm, mm. um because of that 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 poverty as well that intergenerational poverty that has had a big part to play on our health and our mental health and whether it's not, you know, it's 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 the systems, the systems in the in and of themselves, and we're talking about the kind of institutional racism that exists within colonial systems, they they do not mean that the people in inside of them are inherently out outwardly racist. It's that the systems themselves do not allow for there to be a different perspective of how their own privilege can intersect mm. with other people's oppression. I mean, well, like it, we it goes back to what your mum said. They were working in these silos. And that's the whole point of what made, uh, you know, these black organisations and this black methodology that a lot of people, a lot of individuals were bringing to their workspaces so radical is that all of these other people that are considered experts and have had, uh, you know, the game, like they've, they've been holding that monopoly for so long, they actually don't know what it is to to look at something or approach it holistically. 
Um, you know, and we still have arguments about mental health. There's a huge stigma in this country about mental health mm. that creates a lot more barriers for everybody and not just Aboriginal people. And, you know, these are the kind of things that... These are the things. That's that's what you got to know. Like, mm. it's happening everywhere. It's all around us all the time. And you wonder why you feel shit. Mm. Like, you know, it really comes down to that. Exactly. And I, and I think there's a really important thread to kind of pull from this kind of conversation first... Um, kind of starting from that historical po- point where we spoke with mum about how she was entering the community in the 80s, but also that um, the Redfern Waterloo community at a time saw a, like, saw a massive influx of tenants moving into the Waterloo, um, the Waterloo mm. housing um, estate from the deregulated um, mental institutions that were yeah. that was that were the services mm-hmm. that serviced people with schizophrenia and, and mm-hmm. other severe mental illnesses. Those programs in the mid eighties were defunded, and those communities yeah. were put into public housing. Mm-hmm. They became a responsibility of a different welfare mm-hmm. welfare of the welfare state, mm-hmm. and the way that that has um, one one dr- created an, an outward. Um, stigmatization of this community further due to there being people who were not being um, serviced and not being looked after Mm. um, placed in housing on their own Mm. um, who needed um, mental health care and other things and that 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 lack of human services from the 80s has continued to be eroded Mm. up until this very day and one of the main points that we need to kind of hit home in 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 terms of this health context with the with the redevelopment of Redfern and Waterloo today is that we are in a moment where we're going to see a huge influx of 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 people over the next 20 years up to 60,000 people are going to be moving into the area between Redfern Station and Green Square Station with the Waterloo redevelopment consisting of close to around 30,000 new residents in that area, some of which will be public housing or social housing, as they're going to call it, but the rest will be private. And how does that affect the human services that are currently already just getting by in Mm. this community? When is there going to be the human services that are going to be able to cater for the existing public housing community and the new tenants i mean the the new private housing community that that will come in and due to you know the systems that we've already explained in earlier episodes within the kind of the economics of gentrification the way that we experience dramatic uplifts in costs of rent due to these widespread kind of Um, urban development strategies, the kind of speculative nature of the market, increasing rent prices, which means that only certain health services can be there and they have to charge a certain amount just to be able to pay rent, to be affordable in that area. So when when you develop a community in this way, you really jeopardize what is already existing in terms of its health services and its, and its human services towards its community, being in terms of mental health, physical health, all of these things. And, and, and these, these, these decisions are being made in terms by the government without this foresight, without this understanding of not only how this influx of people is going to affect people, because that's mm. kind of the nature of the free market. People believe that there will just be services that will pop up because there will be need and that's how it works. When it is a responsibility of the government to at least look after the um, public housing community because they are their responsibility to look mm. after that's that's what that's what welfare was meaning but you know now we're eroding these these institutions in and of themselves these services become privatized they become outwardly funded and they become harder to maintain within these communities as you know 
um, uplift is experienced by these um, by the rental properties. But they all know what they they know what they're doing. Exactly. They know what they're doing. It is no um, it is no um, you know it's no kind of coincidence that this is all happening. They uh, they have huge details about intimate details about your life. Like, you know, they know everything uh, there is to know about you and where you live and your community. They know what they are doing. And it's all purposely constructed to keep the people in power in power. And the people, the small population of people that benefit from all this and that have that money and make the decisions for everybody else that doesn't have that money or that social status or that white skin or that other thing between their legs... Um, I sound like my mum now. Um, <clears throat> you know, like, if that's a very small population. Um, I read something a little while ago, um, and I think it was just like a meme, and it was just like, you know, you only need like 3.5% of, of a population to overthrow a government. We make up almost 3.5%, the Aboriginal population. So why haven't we not been asking these questions on such a large scale and i guess you know this is the little the little catalyst um you know uh, it's hard to see the shore when you're drowning when mm. you're right in the middle of this it's hard to make sense of it mm. and i guess this is why you know we're doing this is to just put it all out there put it all mm. out there so that you can see it you can have a think about what this actually looks like in your life and Find some pathway mm. just to cut straight through that shit. You know, Definitely. it's just cut straight that down the middle of it because a lot of the rhetoric and a lot of the bureaucratic stuff, again, is a barrier to actually doing anything. Um, and, you know, look at the great things that have come from this community. Yep. Give us the keys. You know, we want to start this. And if you heard that correctly, that's what we're asking for. Like, come on. Like, we need to be able to dictate our futures to be able for this to go and be beneficial for our communities um we're dealing with a set of operations that are systematically trying to undermine the mobilization of these communities and our, our access to healthcare and education are the, the, the i mean apart from f oxygen and food are the basic the human basic need. human needs and rights and it's about and humanness and i guess that's that's why you know um i get triggered so much is because all of this is not within uh, as the spirit of humanity. We're not treated like human people. We're not treated, you know, it was our parents' generation that was still counted as flora and fauna, mm. like literally counted as, you know, part of the stock on a farm yep. and the missions and stuff like that where they were. And this is why, again, this community is such a significant um, snapshot um, is because of the dis dispossession and because of the demographic that makes up the community. We come from everywhere. The Aboriginal people that live there and they live on Gadigal land and, you know, we have that responsibility to keep reminding everybody else about what has happened here because it reminds us how we survived. Mm. It takes mm. strength from that, you know. Um, again, that 3.5 population, 3.5 of the population, is all we need to overthrow a government. Mm. Um, you know, I've seen another picture of, of um, people protesting against, like, petrol prices and stuff like that. There was somewhere where literally... All of the people on the highway just got out and left their cars. Just left their cars in the mm. middle of the street. Mm. That shut down everything. You know? Um, and I guess we're way too complacent. We're way too reliant on a system that does not care about us. And that literally um, 
you know, will will blame you for for your health problems exactly. after they've after they've deprived you of healthy food, deprived you of clean air, land, space, you know, grass. Mm. Um and 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 that's just going off again. We was looking at something this morning about the vertical schools, you know, and touching on um the the episode that we did last week. One thing that is known that kids need is green space. Mm-hmm. They need they need to be able to be outside, you know. Um, all of these things again, they're all nice ideas, but they're not actually they're, they're not benefiting humanness, right? Mm. Well, yeah, and we're gonna see, and you know, this is this is the reality kind of worldwide that we are all experiencing as marginalized groups within cities, as we're getting pushed out to the urban fringes, as property prices rise. Um, and the social makeup of our cities becomes more homogenous um, with in terms of not only, you know, racially, but also um, in terms of, you know, how much money you have. Uh, we're experiencing this change in dynamic, the change in relationship, change in, um, change in maybe even what's expected to be um, normalized in a schooling environment, you know, like, I, I, and, and, I'm, and I'm not going to say that, you know, a vertical school is, 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 the ro- is the wrong answer just as much as, you know, there's, there's always things that change um, through the passage of time, but uh, to believe that these things without exactly access to green space, access to clean air and all those other things will be just as acceptable as they are today. It's, I mean, it's, it's ridiculous. And I think we should take a break and listen to some music, calm down a little bit, and then we'll. No. <laughs> and then we'll. Um, I want to keep ranting. We'll pinpoint back into a kind of more local snapshot um, about the ways in which the current demolition of the uh, metro quarter site and the work being done there has affected mm. the community in terms of exactly these things. Well, how clean is our air right now exactly. with all of this stuff happening? Um, I live next to a construction site. You live next to a construction site. We've interviewed someone that literally is like, like as he as he wakes up every morning, he's got to look at this huge hole in the ground. Exactly. Um, so we're going to come back with that interview. Um, and again, you know, colonization is not good for your health. Exactly. Straight up. You heard up. it here first. Um, well, no, you probably heard it somewhere else before Oh, uh, you would have heard it. Um, we're going to put on some music you've been listening to. Radio Skid Row, The Survival Guide, 88.9 FM. Keep it locked. Welcome back to Survival Guide on Radio Skid Row with Joel. Point nine FM. With Joel and Lorna. Yes. Um, so we're going to go straight into a amazing interview that we recorded this week with a fellow Skid Row presenter and Waterloo resident, uh, Mr. Lima. 
the big man himself. Mm-hmm. The um, voice of the show. Anything goes every Wednesday, Thursday, Friday from, from 10 a.m. to 12. So he was on just before we were. Mm-hmm. So, you know, now your Friday listening starts at 10 and ends at 2. Yep. Um, um, I just wanted to give a bit of context um, for this chat and for this yarn. I've known this person um, since I was like 15. You know, he he is someone that is 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 blind um, and he's a talented person, a credit to the community that I've grown up in. Um, and I first met this person, um, he used to bring his big boombox down to school to try and talk to us about getting into music and getting into rap and, and um, looking at what he did, you know. So I've known this person for, for a very long time. This is probably the first time I got to, got to talk to him in detail. Yeah, right just now we'll just get into it. Unpacking some of his experiences in the ongoing um, gentrification of Redfern Waterloo, his mm. own history in the space. Giving his insight, you know, what is it like for somebody who is blind and, uh, you know, having the familiar familiarity around them and the space around them is a survival mm. tactic. It's a survival thing for this person. And so what does it mean when everything's changing every th- physically around you mm. almost every single day? Especially when, like we said before, those human and health services are being eroded more and more every day. Um, but we're just going to play it now. Oh, sorry. I just needed again. The, there's an ori- there's a, there's a origin story here um, that we didn't get into. So long story short, um, something that happens when they start digging into the ground. So essentially, yes. What we're gonna, what, yeah, we got to cover. This we got, we got to, we got to get into this. So sorry. essentially, when they, when they, when they knock down all the buildings on the site of the of the um, the Metro Quarter, which is the site that's bounded by Botany Road, Cope Street, Wellington Street, and Raglan Street, when they destroyed all those buildings, guess where all the rats went? Well, that's it. You know, so um, this the first yarn that we kind of dive into that we didn't talk about because we just jump straight into it because i've experienced this stuff um lemurs experienced this stuff with the rats um having you know let's let's just play it and i really would be interested to see who else is um suffering from this plague Mm. this begotten by the rats in redfern waterloo would you like to just state your age and where you live just to kick us off yes um I am 37, wow, <laughs> and I live on Cope Street, um, right across the road from Light Rail Construction. Mm. Mm. How long have you lived there? Uh, since 2002, so it's getting it's about 16 years now. Mm. Yeah. Where did you live before that? Um, I lived at my mum's, but things went down, and then I sort of cruised around the streets a little bit and then I got a housing house so Mm. was that your first first house independence um living at that property now yeah first one so Mm. I was so happy to get it Mm. what happened was someone knocked on my door and left a letter in my letterbox Mm. and I can't really read the mail because I can't see that well so um but it was something to do with housing it was something to do with the light rail construction and um what they said is uh, they're putting traps out for the rats. Uh, but I had to ask. I said, oh, because they're saying, oh, we've got to take photos of your of your house, of the walls, to see if they're going to crack with this uh, digging into the ground that we're doing. And um, 
yeah, basically I had to say, oh, yeah, but what about the rats? Oh, yeah, we put out traps and, yeah, we've already done that. I'm like, but no one told me and I still get a lot of rats. So. Yeah, right. Wow. Um, what are some of the other things that you've noticed um, happening since the construction has started? Because you're right there on, uh, literally on the doorstep of it. Yeah, well, um, as someone that can't see very well, I can't walk around the street because um, every time I walk, they move the barriers. So the barriers, um, so you don't get, uh, you know, the rocks thrown on you. So, mm. yeah, those those safety barriers, they move them all the time. So I'm always constantly crashing into them or nearly falling on the road. Um, I walked past one with my dog um, going to the park and I actually dropped all these rocks on me like a big, torrential rain down of rocks came down so yeah that was a bit scary i'm like so if these are safety barriers i'm not really feeling safe right now um the other thing the earthquakes cope street earthquakes on cope street so you know i'm sitting in my lounge room and um i'm thinking what's that noise you know there's someone watching a, a movie or and no, it was the ground actually shaking and the house was just rattling um, because of the construction digging wow. into the tunnel. Um, the other thing was uh, I was sleeping once. Uh, it was like probably half seven in the morning and it was a cold morning. I'm like, oh, I don't want to, maybe I'll sleep in until eight o'clock, you know. And um, I felt this thing jumping on me. And, you know, when you're half asleep, you're like, oh, okay. So... I'm thinking, oh, puppy dog. Oh, it's puppy dog. And then I kind of woke up because I thought, hang on a second, I don't have a puppy dog. My dog's growing up now. And it crawled to my legs and I woke up. I'm like, I don't have a puppy dog. And then I hear the squeak, squeak, and I'm like, there's a rat. It's a giant rat that just jumped on me. Oh, my God. Where was your dog? Um, Snoring his head off, the idiot. <laughs> what are you doing? And I got a big dog too, you know. And um, to be honest, my dog has killed every couple of days. He's killed a rat. My gosh! So you're um, so that's like that's happening in your house. Yeah. So they're coming through because um, my house. They need to replace the kitchen. They've been told numerous times by different departments um, that kitchen needs to be replaced. How and, long have they been saying that? Um, for about. 10, 15 years. So, Jesus. Um, and the rats have been crawling up because there's no floor in my kitchen cupboard. So they come straight from the ground. Wow. Oh, no. Inside and chew on everything. And the thing is, it once, so I came home once and I just bought dinner and I thought, okay, I'm going to walk the dog real quick and I'll come back. And the dinner was just sitting on the counter. And as I go to pick up the dinner... A big rat leaps out at me. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> and so I was checking the bags to see if there's any holes in it because if there were, I wasn't going to eat this dinner anymore. Mm. But um, luckily, the rat didn't bite the bags just yet. I got to he it caught just him just before. Yeah. Oh, man. And that was an expensive fee that night too. I'm like, wow. Anyone would think, listening to this, anyone would think that you uh, were living in the colonial times. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. oh. When you know when they first came here and they had those huge rats um, coming off those coming boats. off the boats and that's kind of how I've been thinking about um, just how rats organise themselves, which is really really foreign compared to how 
animals here in this country, um, you know, organize themselves and do things. Um, and because, and I mentioned a little bit, but I'm, I'm just sitting here listening to you and I'm just like taking deeper and deeper breaths because I I told you about my experiences with, with the rats as well. And, you know, this is very much the reason why we're having this conversation is because, um, you know, I, I was just blown away that, um, that this was happening on such a large scale. Um, <clears throat> long story short, a few months ago, um, a rat got into my son's room and literally tore up that room. And um, this rat was about as big as my foot. I had never actually seen a rat that big in Waterloo. I'm used to seeing those kind of rats more down near the water and stuff like that, um, which is a bit of their stronghold since invasion, I guess. Um, which is a great metaphor for white people in this country, I think, and invasion in this country. Um, and that's kind of how we, I've been looking at it, you know. There's, there's this scourge, there's this plague of rats in Waterloo at the moment, which is very much like the plague of rats that would have unleashed, you know, all of these health problems when white people first came here. Um, yeah. And you know they're all coming. They've all they've all been underneath that um, light rail construction. That whole block of land from what is it Raglan Street all the way down to Wellington Street, bounded by Cope Street and Botany Road. That's a huge chunk of land that all those rats have been living For generations. generations. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, and getting really comfortable. And um and surviving and breeding down there for generations, and now they've been displaced, so now they're they're invading our homes. Um, you know, I was amazed that there was uh, the, the the repairman that came and fixed up the room just kind of made a passing comment about how there's a plague of rats, and yeah. I could not get past the word plague. Because the last time that we was experiencing this, it brought on, you know, a lot of diseases that wiped my people out, literally. You know, there were dead bodies laying everywhere. Like, historically, they talked about Aboriginal people dying so quickly that they couldn't even bury them. Um, Because it was spreading so much amongst them that there was nobody to bury the dead. And that's kind of, you know, the things that I'm, I'm thinking about right now um you know living in waterloo and experiencing this stuff and 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 the people who are supposed to be looking out for our health and our housing and all these things are just being really really quiet at the moment and this is a really big big issue i think um and you know just hearing your story yeah, um yeah. um i'm just so it's it's and they are kind of deceitful as well um like they've been saying they've been uh checking out the dust right that the construction throws up mm. they put one little hose like a dribble of water which is supposed to hose down the dust so they're not only wasting water they're not doing anything about the dust mm. um i've basically had to duct tape some of my windows in my bedroom because i was just coughing up dust oh. I'm like I can't do this, um, and I have uh, my big air conditioner as well, and I just took that apart because all the filters and stuff were just, just caked with dust. with dust, and so um, 
Yeah, the only way I could sleep properly is to duct tape the windows. Oh my god! So I live up the hill behind you, and I I've been doing that for the past six months as well. Yeah. So I couldn't even imagine. Um, but I just uh, I I walked down um, what is it the Princess Highway yesterday? I had a a job at Tempe School. Shout out to Tempe, deadly yeah. deadliest kids. Um, we're doing an art mural at the moment uh, all around the NAIDOC theme because of her weekend, so we're profiling Aboriginal women in history and in their families and stuff. But I had to walk down Princess Highway and, you know, there's a, there's a huge construction there happening at the moment and literally you could see, like I wish I took photos of it now, but you could see on all of the windows down that whole road, it's like the dust and stuff is caked on. You can't even see your reflection. And... Uh, just like walking from Tempe to St. Peter's and then to Alexandria, mm. my nose was dribbling. Mm. Like I was coughing up, I was coughing up shit. Yeah. Mm. My nose was dribbling. I felt congested. And I literally just sat, when I finally got to my mum's house, I just sat and coughed up shit. Yeah. yeah. And that, that's just from walking past. So I can't imagine, you know, the in, what you're experiencing being right there. There's a smell to my air conditioner now, mm. and it smells dangerous. <laughs> it oh. does. So, with you're saying you've been f- experiencing a lot of dust in your in your apartment and what you've been breathing in. It's like has that has that gone on to cause uh, any any like further health concerns for you or? Yeah, well, um, I have been going to the doctor for mm. just coughing. The doctor know? in Waterloo. Um, uh, various doctors, mm. and so I can get it different opinion yeah. every time what are they saying um well i've even get this i've even taken my dog to the vet right and the doctors the vet everyone says the same um we can give you medication but it's just going to keep happening because of the dust yeah so you know from the vet to the doctor there's everyone's having the same opinion and that was never that was never expressed by um you know city metro or land and housing that that was going to be an issue you know you weren't warned about the dust no and yeah. we weren't warned about our walls may crack mm. either yeah. you know and water might run in them all yeah so there's a lot of things that have been missed yeah and i know it's very glamorized what they're going to do to this waterloo and mm. you know i'm like this is you it's glitter i don't think half of this stuff's going to happen yeah you know First, they started out with a 50-50 split for public and private, mm-hmm. and now it's gone to a 70-30 split. Mm-hmm. You know, this, mm. there's no truth to any of this stuff. Mm-hmm. I'm, like I'm feeling, it's and just now they've now they've now they've cut it up so that the metro station finishes first, mm. and yeah. so that means that has to go through com- a whole construction phase, in which there's going to be more dust and more noise, and I. I, you know, I, I, I can't believe that they have already subjected the community to this already and yeah. that they're going to continue to do it. Well, that's politics as well. See, mm. they wanted to finish this light rail very quickly so everyone would vote for this party, you know. Mm. So mm, That's right. Um, and no one else wanted to touch it because they weren't going to pull it back. Yeah, exactly. You know, no, other, no other political party wants to take on the responsibility of ending the project. You know, um, it's our lives that they're playing with, and and it's like your health. I'm like, yeah, yeah. you know, the stuff that I I thought <clears throat> having a son, I have all these concerns about, you know, his long term health and how these things are going to affect him. 
Um, but you know, we're a little bit, the, we're not in, within the proximity right there. You know, we're at the top of the hill. We're yeah. a little bit away, but I still wake up in the middle of the night, three, four o'clock with the house shaking. Yeah. And it freaks me out. I run downstairs thinking someone's trying to break into my house and it's no, there's no one, there's nothing, you know? And it's just like, you kind of go to bed thinking, questioning your own sanity as well. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and they said they weren't supposed to be working at night time, but like I've seen these guys start from seven o'clock at night and continue on till the next day. Mm. Um, and everyone places the blame. Um, some guys say, you know, the other guys say it's the light rail. The other guys say, oh, it's because um, Sydney Water's doing something. I'm like, yeah, but to have that much noise at night, it doesn't really matter who it is. Like people do need to sleep. There's no downtime ever yeah. for you. Yeah, and I think um sometimes some days I'm thinking oh, I'm seriously getting industrially deaf like yeah I can't lose my hearing I've already got limited sight yeah <laughs> that's um, awful have have you been um have you is there any way that you could express your concerns to to um, housing um I've tried. Um, numerous times I've even had like people certain people like Vision Australia come in and say okay you know this stuff's you know unhealthy not good blah 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 um, even oh, several different departments and housing tends to ignore everything that gets sent to them um, so I think next year that's I've decided like I have to go for my own sake um which I never actually thought I'd move out of Waterloo, to be mm. honest. But uh, it's I've heartbreaking thought. I remember when uh, we had to think that way, and then we was only just lucky because there was a uh, there was an empty house in yeah. that somebody had had identified. Um, you know that a family needs to be in there, but that was sitting there empty the whole time yeah, that I was yeah. going through all this other stuff in my previous house um, at the flats, which is just around the corner from where you where you are. Uh, it's just so sad um, to hear, um, you know, how this affects you um, and how this is putting more barriers on top of the barriers that you already have to navigate through. Yeah, yeah. Um, well, I think I'm, I don't know, I've been here for 26 or more years and I'll, I'll be pretty sad because uh, the only place I can afford to move is out country. You know, mm. far, far away from Waterloo. Mm. But um, it's for health and, you know, a bit, and it's, Sydney's just getting too expensive as well. It's ridiculous yeah. just to live, you know. Um, I don't know. Even if we were all to stay behind, like, the prices are getting ridiculous around here. How's yeah. anyone supposed to survive? Mm. You know, let alone, like, let alone the Indigenous community, mm. you know. Again, I guess it, it harks back to, for me, it harks back to that colonial thing of getting rid of black bodies in this area, right? Is when they look at you and they look at you like, you're not supposed to be here. What are you doing here? And I'm yeah. like, 10 years ago, these people would have been too scared to step foot anywhere near these spaces. But now they've come in, taken, taken over, and now they look at us like we don't have no place here. Yeah, exactly. And, and that's 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 vi that's violence, you know. That's it's it's um it's not a safe space. It's the structure, it's the process of colonization. Yeah. Know, as a 
as a larger thing. It's um it's not an event that happened 250, 230 years ago. It's ongoing and it manifests itself in the way that it not only affects indigenous bodies but indigenous bodies from other countries who come and live here mm-hmm. and, and 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 the way that it it directly judges and marginalizes brown and dark skinned people of color um just for trying to exist in the city it's crazy it's um yeah and there's some places that i used to walk you know um around not even redfern in general but like outside the area you know and now i feel like so small you know mm. like how, just, how tall are you just for our listeners as well um i'll be about six six and I'd just probably give, weigh about 140. Just to give a perspective, <laughs> you know, and if that if this is making you feel small, you can imagine yeah, how it yeah. makes me, you know, as a single black mum with a little boy, um, you know, with no man around, the sort of stuff um, that the kind of, um, I don't know, what, what what is it, Joel? Give me a word for it. It's like, I don't know, It's it's it builds up an aggression. It's mm. a, it's... I can't even put my finger on it. It's it's a thing though. It's it's they call it subtle racism, but it's yeah. actually not so subtle. It's actually really in your face and really confrontational. Yeah. And um, you know, with my son, as you can hear, he screams a lot. Yeah. He he's a, he's a screamer. Like he's just starting to find his voice, so he's getting it out there. You know, and a lot of it's always white men that are always approaching me really aggressively and talking to my son like he's an animal. And that stuff breaks breaks my heart, and that's just you know some of the things that I'm I'm experiencing as well, and that's just that that displacement. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I'm kind of getting sick of putting up a big barrier, like um, you know, because obviously you know they can intimidate people. I'm like, well, you're not going to intimidate me, but why do I have to put up this barrier? That's right. Mm. Yeah. Can it be a happy sunny day today, or yeah? That's right, and regardless of the weather, you know, there's something's going to always kind of try to put you in your place. And what is that place exactly? Because that place 10 years ago was mm. actually kind of kind of okay, you know? Like, we're poor, we're living on top of each other, but the community that's been established there and, you know, the type of relationships that's been established there, it's all been for survival. I think that's really interesting, what you said, Lima, about how... It's not only that there's these, you know, health implications of living in a part of the city that you grew up in or have had connection to and experiencing the change, but also the the implications it has on your own mental health and how mm. you how how you have to prepare yourself to leave uh, yeah, um, yeah. your own house. And I think we've all experienced that in in how how is it you're gonna how is it you're gonna um, walk into the world on this day when you know that it's becoming increasingly increasingly not for you in in the in the in the neighborhood that you grew up in you know yeah it's well i'm basically confined to a box you know um i love coming here because i get out in the open mm-hmm. over there it's you know there's a bit of tension and yeah. then there's construction yeah uh so I walk my dog, I come home and stay in my little box. Mm. And I can't do that. For me, I can't, I can't, I need to be out in the open. Like, you know, people have community gardens and things, you know, and, and all the all the good things, the music, the, but there's nothing around there right now. Yeah. I can't live like that. 
Welcome back to the Survival Guide on Radio Skid Row. We just played for you a long interview that we had with um, another presenter here at the station, Lima. He presents the show um, Anything Goes on Wednesday, Thursday and Friday mornings, 10 to 12 a.m. 10 a.m. to 12 p.m. Also a long-time resident. Of um, Redfern, Waterloo, yeah, um, and a public housing resident. Speaking to us about his own experiences of the redevelopment, but mm. you heard that. Mm-hmm. Um, so much, so much to like, you know, the rats, straight up with the rats. Um, I was just mentioning to Joel um, what I think about, you know, how how out of place rats are in this country and why it freaks out and it speaks to something very archaic to myself, mm. um, which is that whole hunter versus scavenger mentality. You know, a lot of our animals here, they have really um, set um, ways of living, mm. um, you know, which is very much reflected within human, uh, you know, our human relationships as well, which is why we have our dreaming stories and all this sort of stuff to contextualise this stuff. Mm. Um you know, and I think it's really interesting that, you know, rats um, are scavengers. And, and feral animals. Yeah. They live off other people's um, off lives. They're um, a par- parasitic. Parasitic relationship to That's people and other things. And I think it's quite an analogy to draw from those foreign invaders that arrived here 230 years ago. Yeah, I, 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 when that was happening to me, I couldn't sleep. Because every, every little knock... So this thing, I had cornered off um, and locked it in the room. I didn't know what it was, but I just know I needed to know what, where it was, right? Yeah. And this thing was like... It sounded like someone was kicking in the, the, the walls. And I had to try and ignore it for about three days until someone came and helped me out. And that... It was just so distressing. Um... It really messed with my head. Um, and then to find out that, you know, just off off the cuff comment that mm. there's a plague happening and yeah. then there was no letters or any kind of health or public service announcement um, by Department of Housing to let us know that this was happening. Mm. Because I was interested, like, you know, I was interested to know how many more other people are ha- going to have to live their lives very vigilantly in the next how many months but no one's even talking about this. So, you know, the only way to kind of address this stuff is to be vigilant and proactive about it. So how are you going to be proactive if you don't even know what's going on? Um, you know, and I'm sure that people are seeing these rats everywhere. Um, you know, see them in the highways and stuff like that. You see them in every corner of, of, of Sydney right now. Mm. And it would have been very reminiscent of when they first came here. Um, you know, because we didn't have structures living in. So we would have been getting tormented all hours of the night. Yeah, exactly. By rats. Exactly. Um, kids being bitten, you know. Uh, we was just I was just looking at um, population figures and talking to Joel and getting into another one of my rants. Um, you know, th- here on this, uh, what is it? It's um, quoting uh, the, what is it, uh, statistics. A Bureau, the Bureau, Bureau, of Bureau of Statistics, that's it. Um, and it says that it's estimated that uh, on arrival that there were 770,000 Aboriginal people here. And by 1900, there was one, 117,000 people. And that was a decrease by 84% of a population. Mm. Now, these are all estimations. And I was just saying to Joel, you know, I find it 
incredible that white people um, don't think that there would have been populations in the millions here because it just kind of fits nicely with the genocidal tactics that has happened here. Mm. I was just talking to Joel as well about how we're still actually trying to build our population back. We're still trying to stabilise our population um, after the last plague of rats. Exactly. Um, you know, some of the health problems that can come with living with with rats, being exposed to rat shit, mm. is, it's really serious um, health problems, you know. And these are things that have never were never brought up by the Department of Housing or Land and Housing or City Metro or anything. You know, mm-hmm. they, are the, they are the kind of untold parts of this story of what happens when you have to live next to urban redevelopment. Mm, no accountability. There's, you know, they're not, they're not even talking about. So this here, this episode is literally probably the only public service announcement um, about this um, that is actually being put out there at the mm. moment. So, you know, and this is just the start. Yeah. There's, there's another 20 years of this to come. Exactly. Um, and it's everywhere throughout Sydney. Like what I said, I was just walking up Princess Highway and I'm still coughing up. I'm still coughing up shit mm. now. Like it's like two days later. Um, yeah. It's, um, I mean, we, it's, it's really important to remember that these things that are ongoing in our city and these parallels that play out between the ideas of colonization and gentrification are real and they do have a real human cost on the lives of marginalized groups um the urban poor and indigenous people and people of color who are are the groups that experience these things the most um and are generally sidelined their perspectives their their narratives around these issues that the trauma connected to this continual dispossession you know this displacement through the financialization of housing um the selling off of of the um public housing estates due to the erosion and the kind of um, getting rid of the welfare state. These are all, um, these are all themes that have played mm. out both time and time again. Um, and they're now playing, they're, mm. they're, they're playing out globally. Um, and let's not forget that we're in these welfare systems because of poverty. Mm. Again, which is another direct link to mm. colonization exactly. and displacement of land um, and not having resources, having resources ripped from underneath us yeah. and sold so that somebody else can have that wealth and then keep, keep us poor again Mm. you know it's a vicious cycle we've got majority of the aboriginal population living in new south wales we've got the majority of that population living in sydney Mm. with the majority of that population being central uh, centralized in redfern Mm. you know up until very recently well there's apparently only 300 aboriginal families left Mm. in redfern after you know i think the number was 60 60 thousand 40,000, wasn't it? 40,000 it was, strong it was at a the lot. height. So I find it interesting as well that after the decrease of this population in this community, that that's also about the roundabout number of all these new arrivals. Again, mm. you know, we keep coming back to how is coloniza- how is gentrification colonisation? Mm-hmm. And we count the ways. Like, mm. literally, we've been counting the ways, how many different ways that it keeps coming back to that. 
So hopefully, hopefully we've been able to kind of show you some of the things that we feel are really, really important um, in these processes, in this kind of ongoing struggle against urban redevelopment and the gentrification of Redfern Waterloo, the way that it is affecting the community currently and the way that these things have affected the community within the healthcare system, but also mm-hmm. the educational institutions and the institutions of the government in the way that they mm-hmm. um, allot for funding towards housing strategies, mm-hmm. healthcare and education um a lot of these things have been done to this community before and Mm. they're continuing they're continuing to be done um we're gonna have to wrap up this show pretty soon i just wanted to what can we do what are some things off the top of our heads that we can do lima said it making sure your windows are closed Mm -hmm. monitoring these kind of things keeping keeping tabs of the maintenance issues Mm. in your house talking to other people finding out how how huge the problem is just around you um you know these are some of the things these are these are going to be our survival tactics we only spoke to one resident this week and it's and it and we will be continuing to speak to more as the show continues i think this issue is something that's very 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 underdocumented um the document it talk to let department of housing know all of these health problems this will not stand this is this is something that you have a right to be upset about. This is something that you have a right to be annoyed about and loud about. You have to be heard. You have to be seen. These things that, that, that are happening are not okay. And the ways that the government and the the departments that work for them have decided that these these issues don't don't matter because they happen to poor people is really it, I mean it's it's fucked. Mm. All you mob out there. I'm really interested to know if you are experiencing the same things that um, myself and Lima um, have been talking about and, you know, that Joel's been talking about as well. Um, hit us up. Hit us up on that SoundCloud account. Hit us up on Facebook. Let us know because, you know, hopefully if all of our voices are actually getting a bit louder saying the same thing, maybe these fellas might actually listen. And I guess that's why, you know, I've got to keep bringing it back to how have I survived? How has brother survived? Mm. How are we going to survive as a community in amongst all of this? And it is banding together and sharing info and... Keeping receipts. Keeping receipts, um, you know, and just holding on to that strength that Mm. is seriously being hijacked and eroded and used um you know as a weapon again to get rid of us you know these are all the things that they have started in the first place let's not forget that Mm. um and yeah that's that's me for the time being (sighs) so much so much tea to spill Thank so you for time. <laughs> thank you for catching up with us on the Survival Guide. We hope that you have learnt something today and and taken from what we have offered um, some t- some some themes, some tactics, some um, survival moves. Um, what's the word that I'm looking for? Some tricks of the trade, ways it's to the tools. the tools. Exactly, it's the tools that you need, and we've been talking about it in every episode. And I hope that you get as much out of this as we do, putting mm. it on the table. And we'd like to thank Radio Skid Row for allowing us to do this, allowing us to talk, and all the support that we get from our wonderful producer Hannah. Um, all the extras that she does to make sure that we're here. Um, so thankful, so grateful to be given a mic. 
when everybody tells us to be quiet. And if you are listening right now, um, we are asking you to make donations or to sign up as a supporter. You can go to the Radio Skid Row website and there's a whole bunch of ranging packages that you can, aff- that whether or not you're you know, a bit stretched and you can't really afford a full membership or a concession pack, you can just buy a bumper sticker, mm-hmm. every dollar counts. Mm-hmm. Um, or you can just call up and uh, make a bank transfer on the number 9560-4254. Um, and we would love for you to make a contribution to keeping this place running and, and, and being mm. a supporter. That number yeah. again is 9560-4254. Um, that's Radio Skid Row. Um, and please just um, keep it locked. We'll be back here next Friday. We hope you have from a wonderful 12, weekend. Where we From 12 to 2 every Friday. Exactly. But keep it locked to um, Brother's show as well. Anything goes. So again, your, 10 till 12. your listening time starts at 10 and finishes at 2 every Friday. We out. Thank We're you. We're done. Thank you. You've been listening to Survival Guide with Joel and Lorna. Um, we'd thank like to you to your mom. Oh and thank God. you, f- thank you, mom, for having a great conversation, Professor Juanita Sherwood, but also yes. my dear mother, um, <laughs> for having a great chat with us about her own experiences working um, in Redfern as an early healthcare nurse and the a lot of the stuff that she's had to experience. Um, you know, we're all navigating racism, and we're just trying to open all you white fellas' eyes up to the racism that's inherent in the system. But now we're going to play a track. We hope you have a good Friday and a great weekend. Lots of love. Survival Guide. Bye.